Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke. And I'm Annie Warmke. You are. And yes. today we're going to talk about big ag or you load 16 ton. <laughs> what do you get? Oh, that's horrible, isn't it? So it just reminded me, you know, oh this, this whole big ag thing is, is it, it's a factory. It's like, it's like, I don't know slavery. It's it's the old coal colonization. Colonization. <laughs> okay. Well, now that we're completely turned off every farmer that's ever. Heard that's of us. right. Everybody just tuned out. <laughs> that's right. So so what are we talking about when we're talking about big ag? Let me uh, and and here we're going to be we're going to be talking about plants at the moment. Uh, this particular episode, we're talking about corn, soy, wheat, rice, the the traditional big sugar, um, sugar. <laughs> Well, thank you, honey. (laughs) So, all right. So, Annie, you define it. Jump in there. All right. Well, I don't know what to say. I mean, the thing is, if I think about what is big agriculture, uh, think of a big factory. And that's what it looks like. So it's making maybe one thing or two things and making a lot of it and just the repetition of it. So the people running it are given instructions by the big corporation, like the grain providers or Monsanto or DuPont or whatever. And then that's the way it's going to be operated. So the person running it doesn't grow their own food. They only grow this commodity. Their main skill sets are they understand the seasons and they may know how to repair the equipment. They understand how the the U.S. Department of Agriculture runs and the programs that are available to help them actually try to make a profit. As the some of the farmers told me, they might bring in $46,000 a year on average, which is true, uh, but it takes 52000 to pay their bills. Okay, so let's, let's back up just a little bit because I think most Americans have an antiquated or maybe a false um, sense of what a family farm is. You know, we have this kind of Almost Fisher Price, you know, with the little red barn and the little and the well, animals. Well, that's the picture that's above the dairy section and the meat yeah. section in every grocery store. Is this nineteen forties pushing farm a plow guy. through the field and yeah. chewing on a piece? But of But it hasn't been hay. like that since the nineteen thirties. So, uh, one of the problems that farmers have always faced is it's a it literally is a feast or famine kind of industry where. Um, one year you have a good crop, and if you have a good crop, chances are your competitors, the other farmers, have had a good crop as well. And then there's an abundance of uh, produce, and so the prices fall. So you had a great year, but you can't get a price for your product. Then the next year you have a terrible year. Prices are high, but you've got nothing to sell. So it's a constant Yeah, battle. but it's so much more complicated than that. For example, you're, if you're any size farm at all, so anything under like the kind of farming that we do, you're going to buy crop insurance from the uh, farm okay. service agency. But yeah, you're getting, you're getting ahead there because what I'm trying to get to is why all these programs were developed. Well, because every farm was supposed to get bigger and bigger and bigger, grow more with less and have bigger equipment. And this all feeds corporate America. So this was part of the evolution where because the farmer was in this feast or famine kind of situation, the government decided to step in and say, all right, we're going to try and level this out year to year 
by purchasing some of your excess crops, feeding them back out during years when there's not as much, subsidizing some of your activities, paying you not to grow things. Yeah. But um, this this hasn't been recently. I know, but, yeah. I know. But this mm-hmm. is the way it developed actually yes. from the 1930s until probably the 70s. Right. Then 1970s came along and, and uh, Earl Butts, uh, who was Secretary, Secretary of Agriculture, yeah. and he came along and, and essentially said, Get bigger or get out. You know, that was And we're going to feed the world. And this is the mantra. This is absolutely the mantra that most large farm producers, so they're not called farmers anymore. They're farm producers by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And this is what their mantra is. We're going to feed everybody. And it's it's just such false marketing. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. incredibly false marketing. And so some of these companies have merged and they've gotten bigger and you know farm equipment is a million dollars for a tractor now that runs by itself on a computer. One of the things that I see is somebody who sits on the Farm Service Agency Committee which is in ev- almost every county in the United States has some form of farm service agency, and that is the local branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You know, they're they're sitting there waiting on the insurance that they're going to purchase. They're they're waiting on a deal like they have these microloans right now, where you can buy bigger equipment or a solar array can be installed. So there's this amazing connection to the government and debt, mm-hmm. and this has led us to be in a place where. We do things like buy wheat from Russia, you know, globalization. And I'm not wandering down a cul-de-sac here when I say this. I didn't even mention that. No, I, I know. I was waiting on it. But the reality is that this, this process that started to evolve back in the 20s and 30s where government was going to step in and, and kind of even out how farmers earned, what ended up happening is that as we discovered in our research for this program, that every time there's a corporate farm, there are 10, there are five small farms. No, that, 10, 10. 10. Okay, 10 small farms that go out of business. Right. Well, what ends up happening, and, and you've kind of alluded to, is the farmers no longer really look at their crop as their profit center, um, really, the the it's all government programs that generate the profit. Uh, if if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't absolutely they wouldn't make that, the decisions it, they make, they, and they wouldn't have any profit because right. they have a huge amount of debt. Most farms, most large farms, have a lot of debt. Right. So the system has been set up and has evolved to the point where the only way you can make ends meet is to get big. You have to go into massive amounts of debt, which the government encourages, almost forces farmers to go into. They have low interest, low interest and insurance. And the insurances and essentially the programs are in place to provide break-even or profit for these. So it's a welfare-based Absolutely, absolutely. And so here's the thing. So there's recently been... Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture released the 2017 census, which is that's a well, the last one was 2012, and it shows that the average farm size in this country is 441 acres, which is an increase of about 1.6 percent from the last census. the The number of large farms, which they consider large farms to be 2,000 acres or more, increased by six percent in the last 10 years. 
So the and the number of one to nine acre farms, which is where we really ought to be if we want to make real food production affordable and healthy, is 17.3 percent. So those small farms are increasing. Those are the farmers and particularly women-run farms that don't have debt, that raise less, raise more on less land, are more sustainable in their practices, work together as a community. You know, when, when I look at where we are, the other challenge is that the average age of these farm producers is 57.2 years. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with the fact that young people have to be brought into the farming industry, and that's what it is, and we've got to do better with minorities and women who are going to do better with how they use the land. Well, like this system, like so many of our systems that evolve, seems pretty dysfunctional, you know, at least to me from an outsider. I don't want to pretend to be a farmer. But we've seen these um, the crops emerge where we have a rotation of corn and soy, uh, which is facilitated through um, petroleum-based fertilizers, pesticides, because the monoculture Genet- ha- genetically modified genetically seeds. modified mm-hmm. and all of this is based upon a government policy that's essentially catering to and facilitating the development of larger and larger farms corporate owned farms they they pretend to be family farms but right. they're but they're not they're really just corporately owned large entities and in fact, the the statistic I saw was since 1995, 75% of all of the government subsidies to farms have gone to the top 10% uh, of the larger right. farms. So it really is a corporate subsidy. Yeah, because corporations lobby the government. Sure. So here's the latest, just to prove your point, is that last week— I like my points to be proven. Okay. Well, they aren't always provable, but this <laughs> Not one— Not by me, usually. <laughs> this is provable, <laughs> is that last week— uh, Sonny Purdue, who is the Secretary of Agriculture, Mr. Purdue from Georgia, the chicken guy, uh, he announced that the U.S. Department of Agriculture was going to receive from the government $16 billion, which would go into the Treasury. So I don't know if agriculture will ever see that money, but it's going to go towards trade policy and financial market bailout to be used county by county to purchase surplus food commodities and to give uh, uh, purchasing power to food banks. Now, that if that is not welfare and socialized, socialized food, I don't know what is. And then uh, the last bit is $100 million is going to go towards paying to develop new export overseas markets through marketing. So which small farmer in that group we could probably find – no names of small farmers that are ever going to see a dime of that $16 billion, and I repeat, it is <laughs> B as in billion dollars. Every dime of that is going to go to big corporations, really big corporations like Tyson Chicken and I don't know what I, – I, I don't buy those things anymore, so I don't know all the brand names. But it's really sad because if we took that $16 billion and we said, look, we're not going to bail out – the globalization of agriculture in this country where we send apples to England to be washed and then they get shipped back and we sell them. That's just the most asinine, incredible, unsustainable thing possible. We should be sending them to Spain for sure. Okay. Well, no, (laughs) we shouldn't be sending them anywhere. We have people Mm -hmm. down the street that could have a job and wash apples. 
But the, the, the reality is that until we say we are going to stop underwriting and providing welfare and charity to these big corporations, we are not going to be able to sustain our economy or our life. This is the problem. And so it's all going to fall apart. Well, lots of it has already fallen apart. Clearly, $16 billion. The corporations didn't get enough money the last few years. And now Mr. Trump's China policy with tariffs is sending the farmers who voted for this administration into panic, absolute panic. I see it, you know. Well, one of the um, uh, byproducts of, of promoting like the systems that we have, again, that, that are all focused on corn and soy rotation, is it, it takes very specialized equipment. And as you pointed out, some of this equipment is hugely expensive. So if I'm a farmer and I've decided to buy into the whole, I'm going to grow corn and I'm going to grow soy, and I've invested $2 million in equipment for my farm, it's not uh, an option to say, all right, you know, the whole corn industry just isn't working for me. Let's plant asparagus instead. Because once you buy into it, you're locked into it. Well, into um, the debt, into the fact yeah. that maybe it was your family farm or you own many farms. But here's the statistic that proves everything we're saying. For that $4.69 box of cereal, that farmer is going to get $0.05, cents, a nickel. And it just makes me angry to just even think about that. All right. Well, if you're angry, just let me tell you. You're listening <laughs> to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. Reminding you, it is indeed, Annie, the end of the world as we know it. And in this topic, thank God. Thank God. So what we're saying when is, is this system that's developed really, again, from the 1930s, the 1940s, the post-World War II economy of taking what was a system that worked for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, the agrarian system, and turning it into an uh, using an industrial model. And that industrial model works to a point, and then it gets it, it's starting to break down. If it's not it's already it's, broken. It's already broken down. We could argue that it is broken down because it's on welfare. It cannot sustain itself. And isn't the the definition of a model that should be sustainable is one that is take in care fact of itself. sustainable. That's right. So if government has to step in with subsidies and programs to prop this system up, then there's something wrong with that system. Right. Well, and the challenge is that we've got this myth that we're going to feed everybody. And the truth is we can feed everybody. But we have a bad distribution well, system. Well, speaking of that, the myth, you know, you hear this all the time, right? Well, you know, that's all fine for you uh, tree huggers out there to say you don't like big egg, but it's big egg that's feeding the world. And that's really not, not the true. case. It's not the case. I mean, big egg exports a lot of food. Yeah. But that food is going to other industrialized wealthy countries. Yes. In fact, only about 1% of America's exports of food go to countries that we would consider to be impoverished. So, yeah, we're feeding Canada. We're feeding Japan. We're well, feeding we're Western Europe. Well, and we're sending that 1%, and we're screwing up their, their food system, too. Yeah, but at least we're trying. So here's you know. the thing. These are our tax dollars. We're, we, we're paying taxes to do this to our country, basically. We're giving all this welfare to these corporations. And I saw this headline by this guy that writes for, for different farm 
uh, publications. And he said, I want to pay taxes like a general, like General Foods, General Mills, General Motors. Motors. Um, and I had to laugh because if we all paid taxes that way, it would be amazing. It would just be almost, we'd be, we'd all be really in a balanced budget situation. Mm -hmm. And I just keep thinking about where is all this going to go? So I got upset when we talked about this initially because it's so frustrating. And I thought, well, let's talk just a little bit about what kinds of programs that are out there for farm producers. Again, that's the USDA name for those of us who are trying to be farmers in some form or fashion. So there are a few branches of the USDA, and you can go to usda.gov, G-O-V, and look up all the things I'm talking about. They've got a digital radio station. They have a digital news every day. They can. I get an email every day. I'm sure they'll be playing this program. They have also a lot of information about loans and microloans, um, their microloans are financing small beginning farmers, niche and non-traditional farm operations like truck farms and direct marketing and sales for farmers markets, CSAs, restaurants. Um, they're also focusing on aquaponics and organic and some alternative kinds of growing methods. So they're looking at how to finance those and help people at a very small interest rate. And so those things are fine. They also have crop insurance. So if your crop fails. Are these designed for the smaller farmers as well? I can't answer that because I've never seen a small farmer go after. I have <laughs> their seen crop small insurance farms. is basically let's tend our plants. And That's right, and do do well <laughs> with the with less land and more production. I haven't seen anything. Uh, I've not seen one to nine acre farms working on this, but um, I will say that I think some of the microloans are going in the right direction to encourage people. But the insurance stuff, that's just really wonky to me. It's like a scam thing. And I could, I guess, get, you know, uh, in trouble for saying that. But it really is a lot of, of farm producers understand how to play the game with the crop insurance. And it's pretty wicked. And they end up paying out, you know, $250 and getting $80,000 because they can show they lost so many tomatoes and so many peppers. Well, those of us who grow food know you're going to have loss. It's just the reality between animals, insects, and the weather and the fact that you lost a certain percentage, but you planted 80,000 plants. Well, that just, that doesn't compute. Anyway. Are you seeing that sometimes they make more money through insurance claims than they would have had they harvested the crop and sold it? It's hard to know because I don't always see the budget part of it, like what they made from the crops. We can see the production numbers, but I can't see the other part of it. So, And, and I will say that the government is trying to work harder to reach what they call underserved. So USDA is looking at veterans, and they have some special programs for veterans, but also the underserved are um, defined as women. So that's good. Minorities, and so they have a large list of minorities, and that they have special design programs that try to support like new farmers and young farmers. And then in some cases, they waive the fees for the underserved for different programs that they do. There's also targeted farm loan program. This is a new program that has youth loans and, again, minority and women farm and rancher loans, um, beginning farmer and rancher loans, plus programs. They have some really good things online 
where people can go and look up information and basic business plans. And again, this is all either at USDA.gov or at the FSA, which is Farm Service Agency. That's your local branch of the USDA. So if you wanted to go to their site, it would be F as in Frank, S as in Sam, A, dot USDA.gov. There's also within the USDA a group called the National Resource Conservation Service, which is referred to as NRCS. There are all these acronyms. And they have grants for uh, matching grants, so you have to put a certain percentage of the cost into fencing and water collection and a variety of other uh, expansion of um, uh, pastures and things like that. They also have conservation programs. All of these things are listed online. So it isn't... But are, are these new programs, are they, again, I keep going back to the small farmers, are the f- small farmers going to take advantage of these, or is this just another way of channeling money into the large corporate, better funded farms? Right. So, well, so I think that the NRCS has a lot of programs that really do help the small farmer, that, that person that's under the 441 acres or the one to nine acre programs, they have some special exceptions for uh, for that small of a farm operation. And so I do think like in rural development, they have a lot of programs for community development uh, in rural areas and small villages and things like that. Uh, they told me that they actually have some grants that don't even get applied for. So it's not that there aren't good things happening. It's just that the monoculture is taking control. And I know you have a statistic on the percentage. Oh, we have lots of statistics. Um, but. That 75% of all these federal subsidies have gone to 10% of the farms. Uh, so th- this, is, this is not good. Well, a lot of the, you know, we think of big ag as producing food. But a lot of the programs that are out there, are producing crops that don't go directly to food. I mean, it's ethanol production through corn. There's all the corn fructose High stuff. High fructose corn and syrup. And the, the feed stock for for meat production. So, you know, it's, it's not like that the corn and the soy is being consumed in its form as food. It's a it's a, it has to be dealt with. It has to be treated in order for it to be a product. Essentially, it has to be yeah, mined or, and, and, or produced. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't know what the percentage is of what's being exported, but it's unbelievable. And then we're turning around and import some of these crops, which sure. absolutely makes no sense well, to me at all. Getting back to what we were talking about, where the argument is always, you know, these systems are more efficient, these systems are more profitable. Well, that's a these, marketing strategy. Yeah, yeah, these systems are feeding the world. But the studies have shown that actually small farms that use diversified crops, like what we would think about as a traditional well, when we say traditional, that's always, uh, you know, the old picture of Aunt Am on the family farm of diversified products are actually producing twice as much food per acre as the monoculture. Well, let me production. say, too, that smaller farms, those one to nine acre people, are growing food for other people and they're also growing food for themselves. Sure. And this is a totally different system than the monoculture or the factory farm or the corporate farm. For like for example, corporate farms, the people that raise these these crops have certain quotas and they have certain instructions about what gets sprayed and what doesn't get sprayed. I mean, sure. they are working down a 
through a list of what they have to do, it's like a no-brainer thing. Well, and they get into long-term contracts about seeds because their seeds can't be reused. They have to they can't use collect ge- seeds. Gele- genetically modified seeds. They get into, of course, the loan payment. They can't set their own prices. They're completely dictated to by the markets. Um, so it really is a discouraging lifestyle, I would think, because you get into the idea of farming and say, I want to be my own boss. I want to be out there producing. I want to you know, control my own destiny. And then you get co-opted into a system that absolutely puts you into you're punching a time clock and you're loading 16 tons and every day you get deeper in debt. You know, it, it's, a, it's a discouraging system for those involved. Well, and people work hard and they work long hours and they have injuries and they worry about if they're going to be able to hang on to the family farm, which doesn't look anything like it did when it started. Sure. Uh, we just had an experience with one of our interns watching the documentary King Corn. And uh, I think, and he was shocked, just absolutely shocked by uh, the film. And granted, some of it talks about the USDA, which isn't completely accurate in how it works right now, but it's the same system now. It just is called something else, where the farmer actually only makes the money through the end where they get collect insurance or they collect some kind of payment. Mm. And it shows what happens with the corn and that it's not really a product until it's processed in some way. And I think we don't understand what we're eating. Well, I would say that the system, we're not going to change the system overnight, but how are we going to change the system over the long term? Because we've, we've kind of gone to the Debbie Downer kind of thing of the system is broken, feels discouraging, feels hopeless. You know, the government is all set up the corporation to cater to the corporation. So, all right, we know that. All right, but here's let's the deal. Let's fix it. That's right. We, this is not fixable. This is going, this is right. already. So let's throw it out and it's let's already go to fallen down. It's fallen down. It's, it's, it's not even on the decline. It's finished. We're just pretending it still is working. Mm-hmm. And so where we're going, one word, it's just in one word. And we talk about it every program, and it's local. We are going local. And so we're not going to feed the rest of the world. You know, we're not. We're going to feed ourselves, and we're going to feed ourselves good food feed from people we and know. Your neighbors. That's right. We're going to feed ourselves. We're going to feed, we're going to buy food from other people that we know. We're not going to be eating plastic strings in our meat and fish and our water. Uh, we're going to eat healthy food. And we're going to do it with great glee together. We're going to share food. We're going to share the responsibilities. And if that's socialism, then good, good, good. Because $16 billion to the USDA is socialism in the form they're sending it. I know. Well, you're you're using that term as a derogatory term. But basically our current system is at its core – corporate socialism. Well, it's more than that. It's fascism. Let's be honest <laughs> okay, about what it is. Okay, let's just throw out some more isms That's here. right. But I'm not <laughs> saying socialism. I'm, I'm being sarcastic because I believe that we have to do better at working together and supporting each other and that that everything has to fall apart and it's going to be hard on people as it becomes more and more clear. I mean, the packages are getting smaller. The prices are higher. The quality makes us sick. The food itself makes us sick. Why do we have such a big medical industry? It's because we're sick from the food we're eating. It's, mm-hmm. it's food that the cattle get well, sick Well, fortunately, from. we have now options. If people – and this is something you can fix for yourself. You do have options, and you can make those – most people do, not everyone. 
But. Yeah, well, we don't always have access because we don't. So when I went to school, which is, you know, older than dirt, I learned home economics. And without that kind of knowledge from the beginning, we don't have the knowledge to be able to make some of this transition. So we got a lot of things we can do. We'll talk about it in another episode. Okay. Well, you have been listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. We want to thank our Emmy Award-winning producer, Adam Rich, sitting behind Who's the glass Who's wearing a cute hat today. Wearing a cute hat. <laughs> That's, it's, uh, he's cute every day. And, uh, <laughs> and thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother and probably Adam now says, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and Jay, I wish to heaven you'd eat your vegetables. Grown locally. Yes. Till Mother Earth will Bye. sing and her children will be You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at BlueRockStation.com.